happen. I just remember one other thing about Liverpool. Uh, when the Queen died, uh, the Premier League decided for some unknown reason that it was appropriate for there to be a minute silence at every soccer game, every Premier League game. Uh-huh. And Liverpool were like, do we have to? Because it's not going to go well. And they're like, no, 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 you have to, you have to, you know, show your support. And it did not go well. It did not go well. And uh, there there were boos. There were boos. And um, yes, the rest of the country was mortified, I tells you. <laughs> I'm loving these Liverpool people more and more. But they're the best. Yeah, They're, they're my people <laughs> in, in England. There you go. We'll have to go. I'll take you, I'll take you to Anfield. We can take in a game of real football. Real it's gone football. quiet now, hasn't it? Yeah, come on. <laughs> I don't. Right. I don't know. I don't know if I could sit through an entire soccer game. That sounds like a lot of. That sounds minutes. like a big commitment. <laughs> Plus extra time. But hardly ever. <laughs> I mean, like it's an actual ninety-minute game that lasts maybe a hundred minutes, as opposed to what's a football game? Sixty minutes that lasts four hours. Uh, the last five minutes last four hours. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Akira Mulvaney, and on this midweek edition of the podcast, we will break down Jaime Munguia's dominant KO win over John Ryder and how it impacts a possible canelo Munguia fight. We'll preview an assortment of B-level-ish fights this coming weekend, and we will conclude the show by getting caught up on True Detective, which is already at the midpoint of its fourth season. But let's start with the news, as a deep and significant card was announced shortly after our last podcast recording. We now know most of what we need to know about the first PBC event on Amazon Prime. Yeah, the only thing we knew a week ago was the date, March 30th. Uh, Here are the other details we now know. It'll be on pay-per-view. I'm sure we'll both have more to say about that. It's at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. It's a four-fight pay-per-view, and the fights are... Tim Zhu versus Keith Thurman at 154 pounds. Raleigh Romero versus Isak Pitbull Cruz at 140, much to the dismay of Ryan Garcia. More to come on that as well. Eris Landy Lara versus Michael Zarafa at 160. And Sebastian Fandora versus Sergei Bohachuk at 154. I am proud to announce that we are the podcast that will not pay any attention to the alphabet belt details and shenanigans, as every one of these fights involves one alphabet group or another deciding to sanction it or not sanction it. And we do not care. Uh, There will be other fights added to the pre-show stream. I'm guessing on regular Amazon prime, although that's just a guess that hasn't been announced Uh, though. Dan Raphael has said the rescheduled Julio Cesar Martinez, Angelino Cordova bout, which was supposed to be part of the final showtime event will be one of those streamers. Dan also says he's hearing the pay-per-view price point will be either $64.99 or $69.99. And the broadcast details in terms of who's producing it, who the on-air talent will be, none of that has been announced yet. Lots to discuss here. And it's hard to separate whatever we think of the quality of the card from the fact that it's on pay-per-view. So, Kieran, what do you think of the quality of the card? What fights do you like? What fights don't you like? And how does the pay-per-view factor impact your feelings about this PBC on Prime debut? 
So I don't hate any of the fights on the card, but I'm also not wildly in love with any of them. Um, I think they're all good fights. I, they're all fights I'm happy to see, although there are no can't misses for me on, on this card. As a first out of the gate offering for PBC and Prime, it's a slightly on the underwhelming side of the ledger. Um, in an ideal scenario, you kick off with something truly special, featuring one of your biggest stars. You have a card with some depth. You have excitement. And in a super-duper ideal world, you do all of that without any of it being on pay-per-view. Right. Um, that said, I think that the nature of the Prime deal specifically was always going to be that it was primarily pay-per-view. Um, there remains reason to believe this isn't the end of it in terms of PBC and their various platforms they're trying to get lined up. But you do only get one chance to make a good first impression. Um, this isn't a strikeout, I don't believe, but it's a bloop hit rather than the home run that they would have been hoping for, I think. Mm. But again, that said, especially knowing who's involved, they are presumably looking long term. Can you tell me what was the first fight card on zone? Does it matter? Do you <laughs> care? Um, you know, so... So let's let's sort of judge the card, I guess, in that context on it, in isolation. Um, of the four fights, I think Fandora Boachuk's a fine opener. Uh, mm -hmm. Boachuk's on a solid run. He's a perfectly good comeback fight for Fandora. Um, not a gimme win by any means for the towering Inferno. He'll be the favorite of Fandora, but there's just enough danger there for Sebastian to know he's got to be really careful because... There's just a risk of loss here, and suddenly, if he if he were to lose, his career could suddenly be in some trouble. Um, I actually quite like Lara Zarafa as well, and there was a time where I never imagined I would ever say anything like that about an Arislandi Lara fight. But Lara 2.0 is much more entertaining to watch, um, even though he still has a lot of his veteran tricks. Zarafa's another one who's on decent form, notwithstanding a, a majority decision loss to Jeff Horn a few years ago, uh, and he'll bring relative youth and energy to the matchup but again i think lara will start as the favorite um i don't like anything about raleigh romero but that's a good solid matchup with <laughs> right. pitbull cruz um cruz was disappointing against giovanni cabrera back in july but look it wasn't as if cabrera was going out of his way to make a fight out of it um romero will be much more in pitbull's wheelhouse this is much more the kind of fight style that makes Cruz look good. Um, Romero's not super mobile. He'll want to stand there and make a fight of it. Romero can be hit. And based on how Romero looked against Ismael Barroso, I think you might make Cruz the favorite here. But this, I think, is potentially the standout fight of, of the card. Um, and that brings us to the main event. And well, do you think this is a step forward or not for Zoo? I think it depends on what you think of Keith Thurman in 2024. Uh, the downside is... He isn't a natural junior middleweight. He's 35. And perhaps most damningly, he's one and one since February 2019. Wow. Um, on the plus side, he appears to keep himself in very good shape. Uh, that one defeat I just mentioned is the only pro defeat he's ever suffered. And it was against Manny Pacquiao. And he, as we know, he has wins over Danny Garcia, Sean Porter, Mario Barrios, among others. Uh, I think this fight makes sense for Sue. It's a fight against a veteran with a big name who will come to fight, who will challenge him, who has genuine skills, um, but whom he couldn't nonetheless feel reasonably confident of beating 
at this stage in, in Thurman's career. It's a good launching pad in the United States for Zoo. He should get a challenge. He should still emerge with a victory that showcases his ability, a, a victory that he's going to have to work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be a bit less good for the fans than it is for Zoo, but I still think, I don't think this is going to be an embarrassing one-sided demolition for Zoo. And, and if it is, that's actually great for him because nobody has come out looking great against Keith Thurman at any stage. It's, I feel that all in all, it's a pretty decent, reasonably strong card that we might be getting pretty enthused about if it weren't on pay-per-view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess I should caveat all my comments here with, look, we've worked with PBC in the past and we have ambitions of working with them again in the future. So while I will try to be honest here i'm not an idiot who wants to sabotage himself so you know forgive me if i if i soften a few edges as i discuss this but yeah i don't think it's a hot take to say basically what you said at the end there that this is a very good card to start with but that i'd much rather see it offered on regular prime to introduce a new audience to what pbc has to offer you know like extremely casual boxing fans are not going to pay extra for this card. I guess if the um, if the undercard pre-show fights are on Prime, then technically that means the first fights in this deal will air on Prime and not pay-per-view. But still, uh, strategically, it would have made more sense to start with a, a doubleheader or tripleheader that all Prime subscribers could watch. That said, I'm into three of these four pay-per-view fights, including the main event, which... I know some people are down on because Thurman has been so inactive. I hadn't even realized one and one in the last five years, basically. But he's not that old. He's 35, same age as Lomachenko, same age as Tyson Fury. He's likely past his peak, but probably he's not washed. Um, I do view him here as a clear underdog, like it sounds like you do, but certainly not as a pushover. I think he can give Zoo problems. And he fits in just fine progression-wise for Zoo. He's on a similar level to a Brian Mendoza or a Tony Harrison. If he's not too rusty, he's actually probably Zoo's best opponent yet. Certainly he'll be his biggest name opponent yet. So I'm good with that fight. I like Raleigh and Pitbull a lot. Um, Intriguing clash of very different styles, very different personalities. It's a very promotable fight. They're at a similar level. I think that's an excellent co-feature. Fundora versus Bohachuk, I get the sense that uh, I'm a little higher on this one even than you are. You seem to like it. To me, this is like an A-plus show opener. You know, fun fighters, aggressive fighters, seems close to an even matchup. They both have one loss, so there is a lot on the line. You said for Fundora, you know, how how important it is not for him not to lose this fight. I think Bohachuk's really in the same spot. They both have a lot on the line. As a pay-per-view opener, there is nothing not to like there. Um, So process of elimination. I said I'm into three out of the four. I'm lower than you are on Lara Zarafa. Can't muster up much enthusiasm for that one. Now, as you said, Lara has turned into a fairly entertaining fighter the last several years. So that's good. And even though he's 40 years old, he is still world-class as far as I can tell. You know, it's, it's not a gross mismatch or anything, but that's the one fight on this card that doesn't add any value to the show from my perspective. Um, 
speaking of, of value, the, the possible price points that Dan is reporting, you know, not that five or 10 bucks makes a huge difference to most people, but I'm, I'm glad to hear at least that it's not at the $75 or $80 level that they, they use for the biggies. It's a little lower than that. I'm very eager to learn about the broadcast team and the production team. I know the world is waiting with bated breath to learn about shoulder programming, specifically podcasts. <laughs> uh, that's actually more important to millions of boxing fans than, than millions. What the, what the fights are. You know, who cares about that? They want to know what the podcasting shoulder programming is going to look like. So uh, anyway, we'll we'll have plenty of time to preview this card and um, possibly to do some paid shilling for it. We shall see. Um, and we genuinely don't know, by the way. Just in case people are wondering. No, I'm not. We're not playing coy. We know we don't we're know not, a thing. We're not. Right. We generally don't. Um, you mentioned in the setup that Ryan Garcia was none too thrilled about the Raleigh Pitbull announcement, and honestly, no wonder. Like literally hours before, he had claimed on social media that he would be the one fighting Raleigh next. Um, let's just say this is unlikely to have exactly helped what must be the most dysfunctional boxer-promoter relationship <laughs> in the sport right now between yeah. Ryan Garcia and his promoter, Oscar De La Hoya. Eric, would you have preferred Garcia Romero to Cruz Romero? And any other thoughts on King Rai's situation right now? Yeah, I'm not sure one fight is better or worse than the other. They're, they're just different. Um, certainly, Garcia versus Romero would be a bigger fight. Um, but, you know, stylistically, they're very different. I guess Cruz Romero has more potential to be a bit ugly because Pitbull wants to make fights ugly in spots and Raleigh has some awkward moves. But, you know, basically as a fight fan, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, but boy, what a weird spot here for Garcia. I assume you saw his tweet uh, after it all went down. Uh, I'll, I'll read it here for anyone who didn't see it. Look, I was informed the deal was finalizing and it would be announced in the coming days. Obviously, that was a lie. My patience has been tested the last few weeks. I'm trying my best to be as honest and real as I can to you guys. I'll be looking forward to announcing my next fight. I'm not going to say anything until it's actually signed and delivered. I still look forward to putting on a big pay-per-view for DAZN Boxing. Have a blessed day. Um, Garcia and Oscar, they just cannot get on the same page. It's it's kind of funny and it's kind of sad all at the same time. This may reopen the door for Garcia to fight Devin Haney, um, which is maybe the toughest possible fight for him, but it's a big event. It's a fight I should think Haney would want more than any other. Um, but fact is, it seems Ryan Garcia isn't getting out of his contract with Golden Boy until it expires. He has to make the best of it. Doesn't want to waste prime years. But uh, yeah, this is, this is just about as awkward a promoter-fighter relationship as I've ever seen. Um, quick news undercard here, starting with a few upcoming fights besides the March 30th PBC show that have been announced or are coming together. The big one is Artur Beterbiev versus Dmitry Bivol. And the word is that negotiations for that light heavyweight championship fight are focusing on a June 1st date, which is earlier than Beterbiev wanted it because that's about seven weeks after the end of Ramadan. But Apparently, he's close to conceding on that point. We also have a working date of May 6th for Noya Inouye versus Luis Neri at the Tokyo Dome. Uh, that one won't be official until Neri's suspension in Japan for missing weight in 2018 is lifted. Reportedly, that's a formality. On March 16th, the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas with DAZN streaming 
Undefeated lightweight William Zapata will take on Maxi Hughes, who was most recently seen dropping a disputed majority decision to George Cambosas. And on March 2nd on DAZN from San Juan, Puerto Rico, Jake Paul takes on another professional boxer, 17-2 and Ryan Borland, while Amanda Serrano also appears on the card against Nina Menke. Then there's one item not about an uh, upcoming fight that we should discuss here. On Monday night, Shakur Stevenson took to Twitter to say, I'm officially retiring from the sport of boxing. I'll be in the gym forever, perfecting my craft and helping the next generation become great and chase their dreams. But I ain't FW this week boxing game. And then a flexed bicep emoji. I suspect this retirement may be even more short-lived than Teofimo Lopez's. <laughs> uh, Kieran, anything to say about any of these items? So I'm tempted to put an over-underline on how long it takes for Shakur to officially unretire. Okay. Or at least to start publicly talking about his next possible fight. Um, where should we put that line? Because, of course, when he, whenever he makes that any kind of public comment, isn't necessarily when he's already decided that he's unretired, which I suspect he already is. Um, right. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you're setting a line for like when he actually is announcing right. his next fight? Okay. Okay. Well, you see, this is a difficult thing. What. Or at least when he, no, I think when he says something to the fact that I was going to retire, but I'm, I'm staying back at it. Or at least when he starts speculating about possible fights. Cause that okay. So some, something that wild. indicates that he is acknowledging yeah. that he is not really retired. So I'm, I'm going to put that line at three weeks. Okay. So it's three it's, weeks. Cause he's going to, he's going to tweet quite a bit, mm -hmm. but he might, he might not change it around immediately it might be a bit too far out i i i, I almost wanted to make it sooner than that but <laughs> i mean but it's not it's like it's not a serious retirement announcement he didn't right it was the there was the third of a series of three increasingly anguished tweets that began with his frustration with one of the alphabet groups um deciding that 130 pound Belt holder Manuel Navarrete should face Dennis Berenchik for its vacant, vacant 135-pound belt. And then he followed that up. After freaking out about that, he followed that up with, I might as well retire, or words to that effect. And then that other... So it's not... It was a frustration right. kind of a tweet. Um, yeah, I'll, okay, I'll stay with three weeks as, a, as an over-under. What do you think? Okay, so I, have to, so I have to go over-under that. Uh, so it sounds like you're saying that if you had to lean one way, you would go under sooner. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't if we were setting a line for when he will like actually be announcing his next fight or whatever, I think it would be longer than that. But if we're just setting a line for yeah. when he sort of tipped his hand, that he's not retired. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm with you that probably inside three weeks is more likely than beyond three weeks. It's a pretty good line, though. Yeah, I mean, this just feels like frustration. He's frustrated that his last performance drew criticism maybe he's frustrated yeah. that he isn't being offered a huge fight right now but yeah there is zero chance this is a serious retirement there's a teeny tiny chance that he thinks it's serious but if so he's wrong uh and i think there's a higher chance that it's just frustration or that it's entirely cynical and he just wants attention you know he saw teofimo yeah. get some attention right. by saying he was retired and so now he's just trying to do the same so yeah i'll, I'll go under three weeks on that line Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. As for the rest of those items, and then it's not not much to comment on, really. Um. Uh, continued progression towards better BFB vault is great. Um. Love the idea of Inoue Neri at the Tokyo Dome. Um. Great to see Inoue 
basically progressing to big giant stadium fights now. I mean, he, the man is just becoming a superstar, a, a megastar even over there. And, um, you know, you see some some comments on social media. Why doesn't he come and fight over here anymore? Why the hell should he? Right. Um, <laughs> um, uh, other than that, not a tremendous amount to add, really, about just, just a nice little sequence of fights that are in the process of getting made. The question is, Will it be quiet enough in the Tokyo Dome that night to hear, to hear a rat pissing on cotton? Whose was that phrase? It was uh, Aaron Snowell. And every single time he's ever been interviewed about Tyson Douglas, he busts out that line. That is that is his version of, of Thomas Hauser saying Frazier and Ali were fighting for the championship of each other. You, you don't have to push very hard. He's going to tell you it was so quiet you could hear a rat pissing on cotton. That's fantastic. I love yeah. it. Um, um, Let's look back on the big fight from last weekend. Jaime Munguia's ninth round TKO of John Ryder. Uh, you made the upset pick with your bankroll, but it didn't pan out. This one was just never really close. Although Ryder did win two rounds on two of the scorecards, but Munguia dropped him in the second, the fourth, and twice in the ninth, leading to the corner stoppage. Um, we were both somewhat down on Munguia a few years ago, particularly in 2019 when he won a controversial decision over Dennis Hogan, but if we agree that he's been looking better lately with four KOs in his last five fights, and with some considering this win over Ryder his best performance yet, the question is, why? Um, Eric, would you say this was Mungia's best win? Why do you think he's been looking better? And why he won this fight so convincingly? So the, I guess the easy question to answer there is that, yeah, absolutely unquestionably to me, this was his best win. Um as we know, I thought Ryder was a live dog here, and uh, Munguia was in control the whole time. He got the KO. Uh, this is undoubtedly his best win and best performance, unless maybe you want to make a case for his arrival win over Saddam Ali back in 2018. But um, yeah, no, he looked great. So certainly this was a bad bet by me. Um, and um, side topic, there, there was one other bet I was considering. Over 0.5 knockdowns in the fight was minus 110, which would, you know, seem potentially good before the fight, but I didn't act on it. And of course, that one won early and, and often. Um, but uh, back to the topic at hand, w what's going on with Mungia? Has he turned a corner? If so, why? Of course, it's, it's a combination of things. But I think I'd start with, you know, for some fighters, changing trainers messes them up. In Mungia's case, I get the sense he's learning new things from each new trainer, building on what he already had and, and adding more elements, developing better ring sense, when to box, when to brawl, when to be busy, when to lay back. This is not someone who's changing trainers for the wrong reasons. You know, those reasons usually being I lost and I got to blame someone. So I'm firing my trainer. Mungi has been adding new voices to his corner and learning he seemed to progress some with Eric Morales. Now Morales doesn't have time to train him, so he goes to Freddie Roach, and clearly Freddie is helping. So, so that's where I'd start, that Munguia is learning from new trainers. He's growing. He's maturing as a fighter. I have to say his footwork has really improved. He seems better at controlling space, cutting off the ring. He's gotten lighter on his feet, it seems. Um, but also, let's do some devil's advocate here. There's a chance that part of why he looked so good on Saturday is that John Ryder was softened up for him that the the tough fights especially a full 12 rounds with canelo that mostly featured Ryder on the receiving end that that caught up with him um Mungia is a good puncher but 
I don't know that Ryder should have been going down so easily and so often unless his resistance has been chipped away at. So can't discount that. Clearly, Munguia is improved, but also maybe Ryder at this point in his career was made to order for him. Uh, how about you? What were your thoughts on the fight um, and, you know, the natural spin forward afterward? And we had discussed this beforehand as well. Is the Munguia versus Canelo possibility? Can you now see that happening in May? And how high is that on the list of fights you want to see for Canelo? Yeah, well, look, like you said, we talked about this last week. And um, at the time, I wondered about the wisdom on the part of Mungia's people of making a fight with Ryder because I was working on the assumption that it's almost impossible to look good against John Ryder. Um, but you did count it. If he were able to look good against right. him and he were able to look better than Canelo, then it's a major statement. And there you go. And that's how it worked. It was a major statement. Um, Gamble paid off in spades here. And and I guess, you know, sort of looking at the fight and sort of adding to what you were saying about how Mungia looked and, and how he's looking better, I guess in hindsight, you know, he absolutely has some of the skills and strengths to be effective against a guy like Ryder, specifically in that he has the reach and power and combinations and commitment to his punches to not just keep Ryder at bay, but to force him back and, and to punish him when he does start to come in, right? Ryder is at his most effective when he's able to get in close and be that kind of pressing, mauling machine. And and Munguia was able to turn that against him. Um, that fourth round knockdown in particular was a case of turning his momentum against him and, and dropping him as he was coming in. Um, but yeah, I also agree with you that Munguia is continuing to show technical improvements uh, to go with his sort of like natural strength and power. And I agree with you with the footwork. It was enabling him to get better angles and better leverage on a lot of his punches. I, I don't know... If Munguia is likely to be next for Canelo, or or how much consideration there there is, um, I saw that I think it was Salvador Rodriguez of ESPN reported the other day um, online that he understood the plan for Canelo was Jamal Charlo in May and Bud Crawford in September. I hmm. don't know about that. I wouldn't hate that at all. Um, but you know, you've got those two guys. You've got David Benavidez, obviously potentially David Morrell, and now Munguia. I think what I can say is that Munguia now deserves to be mentioned in that basket of possible opponents for Canelo. And being Mexican, I think, probably gives him a kind of advantage there. And and I also wonder still if Canelo would look at the different possibilities and still maybe think that Benavidez is still just too big and dangerous to be easy, but he might look at Munguia and think, ah, I can still take him. And he looks pretty good, but I, I think I know how to beat that guy. And and I wonder if Munguia might have put himself in a, in a pretty good uh, uh, position. I, I Like I said, I don't know if he would remote, remotely be in the frame for next, but he's in the frame. And, and that's really the best that anybody who is a potential Canelo opponent could do. As David Benavidez can attest, putting yourself in the frame doesn't mean a damn thing. Right. But it's the very least you could do. I mean, what would you, what, what about you? Like, if, say, Canelo Munguia was, was the, the possibility for May 4th, is that what you want to see next? Or would you be happy to see it at all? So it's interesting. I, I hadn't seen that uh, Salvador Rodriguez tweet. I have heard the first half of that quite a bit, that they... Jamal Charlo is the opponent that they are looking at as the leading contender for May. Um, I hadn't heard about 
them seriously thinking about Crawford for September. That is very disappointing as, from the perspective of someone who would like to see Benavides get his shot. Um, but again, this is just reporting and rumors and not necessarily how it's going to happen. Canelo Minguia, sure. You know, it's it's not like, oh my God, I got to see that fight. I have no idea what's going to happen when they touch gloves. I have a pretty good idea what's going to happen. But if he's not going to fight Benavidez until at least the fall, if not next year or never, um, and if Canelo versus Bud Crawford is at least not a possibility for May, if we take those two fights off the table, then then sure, I'm fine with this. And, uh, and I acknowledge that it became quite marketable on Saturday night. You already had in Munguia an undefeated Mexican fighter to face Canelo on a Mexican holiday. Uh, now you add to that, he did what Canelo couldn't. He stopped John Ryder. And Ryder specifically said afterward that Munguia hits harder than Canelo does. That makes it possible to sell as a serious fight there. That's an angle to begin to make the case that the upset could happen. So sure. I, I have no problem with Canelo Munguia if that's the route they went. Um, especially if the alternative is Canelo versus Jamal Charlo. Um, just in case you and I have to shill for that pay-per-view main event someday, I don't want to come out too hard against it, but I'll, I'll just say that it's a really hard sell. Even if, Maybe Jamal Charlo is more of a live underdog than Munguia. It's a hard sell. There's no doubt in my mind that Canelo Munguia in May now sells more pay-per-views than Canelo Jamal would. Let's talk for a second about the stoppage of the Munguia Ryder fight, because we got some comments on our Substack about this. Uh, Dan at the bat wrote, I think that Munguia Ryder stoppage answered one of the questions vexing Raskin. Instead of the corner trying to get the referee's attention by standing on the ring apron with a towel, the corner should go to the timekeeper when they want to stop the fight and the bell will simply ring. And Enoch added in a comment, with regard to the stoppage, it's almost like they stopped it both too late and too soon. It would have made sense to stop right after the second knockdown, but less sense after Ryder was back up and defending himself. Curious to hear y'all's thoughts. So, I'd just say um, it, it seemed the corner did indeed want to stop it immediately after that second rock knockdown of the ninth round, but couldn't get the ref's attention. Hence, the fight went on a few more seconds, and it was a slightly awkwardly timed stoppage with the corner getting the timekeeper's attention instead. And he rang the bell and the ref got the message. I agree with Dan. That's that's a fine way to do it. Um, I had suggested when we discussed this recently that, that when the corner wants to surrender, they turn on the flashing lights on the corner posts. But uh, this seems an even better solution. Run over the timekeeper. He rings the bell. Done. Now, there is that issue of refs like Arthur McCanty Jr., who will throw the towel out of the ring and keep the fight going, even though the corner wants to surrender. Uh, I still can't believe he did that. That was was Cotto and Yuri Foreman, right? Uh, is that the yeah. that's the one? Yeah. I, yeah. Terrible. So you're not going out like this, champ. Right. No, he's ready to go and his corner wants to stop it. The fight is over. So we need the rule in all jurisdictions to be that if the corner tells the timekeeper to ring the bell, that's it. Fight's over. But yeah, this seems to work. Um, anything to add on the stoppage topic, Kieran? Um, I didn't notice anything particularly amiss with the stoppage. I mean, sure, it could have been stopped after that one knockdown. But yeah, the, the issue remains that one of getting the referees at attention uh and, and that's the bigger thing. i don't love the idea of involving the timekeeper personally for a couple of reasons um i just think the timekeeper's got their job to do and ultimately it's not the timekeeper's decision 
to stop the fight. As you said, the way the rules are, it is still ultimately up to the referee to stop the right. fight. So if you've got the timekeeper ringing the bell with it not being time, and then the ref, it, it's it's. I think it can add to confusion. Plus, it's easier for one corner to do that than the other because one corner is going to be next to the timekeeper That's and the true. other one's on the other side of the ring. So I don't love that. Um, I, it was what it was. I, I don't think it... I don't know that Ryder took any additional punishment. Um, yeah, some, some stoppages are a little sloppy. But yeah, there is that issue of just trying to make sure that when a corner is ready to stop it, I mean, at the end of the day, if you want, if you don't mind your guy getting a DQ instead of a TK, you could just run in the freaking ring. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, so, so I don't know. I didn't. I didn't particularly have any issues with it. But um, there was a, there was another stoppage on the card actually that actually let me get your discussion, uh, your thoughts on. There was a bit of debate and discussion over that, and that was the Gabriella Fandora Christina Cruz fight, uh, which was stopped in the final round with about a minute or so to go. The Dazone announced team hated it. I didn't. What do you think? No. So it was actually the ninth round out of 10, not the, oh, the final ninth round. But yeah. But it turned out to be the final round. Um, right. So, yeah. So uh, for those who missed it, Cruz was hurt. She got turned around facing away from Fundora and she turtled up and hunched over and covered up. And Fundora reached around and punched at her head from behind a couple of times. And then Cruz, still covering up, walked away from Fundora toward the ropes, still covered up. And the ref stopped it. And yeah, the broadcasters called it a bad stoppage. But look, everyone knows I love Sergio Mora. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a great commentator most of the time. But he had this all wrong. The whole broadcast team had it wrong. This is refereeing 101. If the fighter turns their back and walks away and, you know, it's not just a quickie half second thing. And then they turn back around and engage. I'm talking about they are disengaged and walking away from the fight. You stop it every time. Yeah, you could use some discretion, maybe based on the magnitude of the fight. If it's a huge pay-per-view main event or something, maybe a little more leeway. And you, instead of stopping it immediately, you yell to the fighter, you know, turn around, show me yeah. you want to fight, something like that. But the default proper decision, how refs are taught to do it, is if a fighter turns around and walks away, you stop the fight. I've seen it happen plenty of times. And I guess they need a, a rules analyst or a trained ringside scorer, a historian, something like that on that broadcast team, because someone should have known that what the referee did there was was standard practice. And there was actually nothing controversial at all about the stoppage. Maybe it was an unsatisfying way for a tan, but that doesn't mean it was incorrect. Not at all. Yeah, no. And, and I'd been in the UK and hadn't seen the fight live. I had seen that there was some controversy about the ending saw the fight subsequently knowing that there was some controversy about the ending was looking for the controversy about the ending and actually <laughs> said to myself there's nothing wrong with that no <laughs> yeah Not that, that's just the way the way it is you gotta defend yourself at all times yeah if you turn your back and walk away i'm sorry fight stop yep uh okay turning our attention to the week ahead uh i see four notable streaming cards on the schedule uh nothing major but a solid quantity, at least, of second-tier fights. First, uh, tonight, actually, so this will be a, a bit dated for those who don't listen to the podcast same day, but Angelo Leo, a Showbox alum whose only loss came against Stephen Fulton, fights Mike Planilla in a ProBox.TV main event. On Friday on DAZN, one of Jake Paul's prospect cards is headlined by Ashton Silve versus Esteban Falcao. 
early in the day Saturday from London and streaming on Peacock. It's light heavyweights Joshua Boazzi versus Dan Aziz and at junior welterweight Adam Azim versus Enoch Polson. And lastly, Saturday night on DAZN from Las Vegas, Connor Ben fighting for the second time since his PED controversy takes on Peter Dobson, an unbeaten fighter from the Bronx who will be stepping up his level of competition significantly against Ben. Anything here of interest to you? Uh, and I'll note, we are under no obligation to place any bets. We've both uh, hit the minimum required for January, but uh, anything you'd like to wager on among these? There's nothing I, I see that I want to make any bets on, but I'll say that Angelo Leo Planilla is a good fight for Pro Box. Uh, I think that Estevan Falcao is a good opponent for young Ashton Silva. He's been amongst some decent opposition, um, including the Hero Albright, who, of course, recently ultimately wound up with a no contest against Kishan Davis. Boazzi Aziz is a very good fight. Uh, two undefeated, 17-0 versus 20-0, British light heavyweights, a real opportunity to see whom, if either of those two, is ready to take a step up to the very next level. The fact that Conor Ben is continuing to fight far, far away from the British Boxing Board of Control's mm-hmm. influence says everything about exactly how, quote-unquote, cleared he has been of any PED offenses by that by that body. Um, but that that's all I really have to think about any of those fights. But I really, really like Boatsy Aziz. Uh, and Adam Azim's a really interesting young guy on, on that undercard as well, and he's somebody to keep an eye on. So that Peacock card is, is the standout for me. Yeah, I, same as you in terms of bets. I won't be placing any. Um, yes, all but two of these are very wide spreads with favorites who are minus 1,000 and up. The relatively close ones are a couple of the ones you singled out. Uh, Leo Planea, uh, Leo is around minus 400, so that's competitive on paper. And Boatsy Aziz, Boatsy is also around minus 400. Maybe Aziz has a shot. He's at plus 290 or so, but... I, I just I just tried the plus two ninety underdog last week. I'm 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 gonna pass on this one. Um, I will be watching that Peacock show. Um, because uh, I am one of the millions who caved and signed up for Peacock when they had exclusive rights to an NFL playoff game a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my son, <laughs> my son wanted to watch the game, and I looked and I saw that Peacock is only six bucks a month, and they were offering half off for the first year to try to get those NFL fans signed up. So 36 bucks for the whole year. I think I can swing that. So I have Peacock, may as well use it. Uh, So I'll be checking out that boxer show from London. But that said, there isn't a single fight here that I'm planning my weekend around. I I don't know that I'll be watching any of these live. feels more like a a Sunday morning boxing binge with Mm -hmm. possible liberal use of the fast forward button. (laughs) there you go all right let's finish off this episode by returning to true detective night country Uh, it's the latest installment of hbo's anthology series and uh, this season features jodie foster and professional boxer kaylee reese uh i missed episodes two and three when they aired because as i just mentioned i was in britain but i caught up with them on my return and in typical true detective style these episodes we've seen some steady unspooling of the backstory that's behind the relationship between the two principal protagonists, which is the, the key feature of, of True Detective, in this case, mm-hmm. between uh, Reese's Evangeline Navarro and Foster's Liz Danver. We've also seen the revealing of more explicit connections between the horrifying deaths of the scientists in the research station and the murders seven years previously of a Nupiak activist, uh, Annie Kotok, um, including the fact that one of the scientists has been having an illicit affair with Kotok. Right. The two had matching tattoos 
with which uh, fans of True Detective from season one will be very familiar. An interesting callback there. Um, furthermore, one of the dead scientists had that same tattoo covered in his forehead. That one scientist, Clark, who had been having an illicit affair with Kotok, is, is unaccounted for. Is he out there somewhere? Is he responsible? And why on earth was it, in fact, Annie Kotok's tongue that was found at the science base when she's been dead low these many years? And what kind of strange inhabiting spirit has possessed the one surviving scientist that he right. was able to sit up and look at Navarro and say, your mother is waiting for you? Well, it's all pretty interesting stuff. Lots to unpack, Eric. So how do you feel after three episodes? Are we still as into it as we were after episode one? So I, I'm coming at it from a slightly different perspective than you because you just, I, I guess, yesterday binged yeah. episodes two and three back yeah. to back. I'm already having trouble remembering the specifics of episode two because I saw it a week and a half ago. But yeah. <laughs> here's what I know. I really dug episode two. And some doubts are starting to creep in after episode three. Uh -oh. It's just I'm I'm still enjoying it, but they were throwing a lot at us in that episode. And it's starting to feel like a lot to keep track of felt felt a little overstuffed um we'll see how i feel when it's all over but but right now it's feeling like maybe they'd actually be better off with eight episodes instead of six to, to spread it out a little more it feels like they're cramming a lot in there um and and the third episode that's where this flipped from more what i would call mystery genre to horror being the primary genre i feel like i'm watching <laughs> and no i mean the episode was fine i'm still enjoying the show but they, they they may be starting to lose me just the slightest bit with with the third episode um like for example like through two episodes i was very into dan versus ask the question technique. It was like, oh, that's kind of her thing. That's cool. That's an interesting mm -hmm. technique. That's what she does when, so we say that she does it with, she's doing it with Pete and she had done it previously with Navarro. Okay, nice through line. By the end of the third episode, I'm kind of, I've kind of already had enough of that sort of, that that technique of hers. Um, but you know who I bet loved the third episode? Mm. Caleb Truax. I mean, there's, yes! a guy, there's a guy ice fishing in a little cabin. So uh, that that's a, a deep cut for the hardcore podcast fans, the uh, the Caleb Truax reference there. But um, it sounds to me, Karen, like uh, like you're in, on the same page as me, uh, starting to think this uh, Annie K case and the Salal scientist case that, that these are connected somehow. Yeah, I, I mean, I <laughs> I didn't quite watch it back to back. Um, OK, I, you did watched... put a little break in between. Gave myself a little break, um, okay. but but only a matter of hours rather right. rather than a week. So yeah, no, I'm I'm still very into it. I'm still enjoying seeing uh, how it's all going to wind up. It's hard to see how something like this is going to get wrapped up in in about uh, uh, in another three episodes. There were, there was a point I can't remember. I think it must have been episodes two where I was beginning to really be down on Danvers as a cop. Like when uh, when Navarro says. You know this this tattoo you found in this guy's forehead. Annie had that, and Danvers goes, "So." I'm like, "What do you mean, so? <laughs> Obviously, that's significant." <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, come on. And this the tongue. Can we can we you know talk right. about the tongue? And and but, but when that DNA came back, at least she did finally sort of um, uh, cop to that. She's clearly not telling the whole truth about right about why there's that rift it's interesting that they showed the flash as she was talking about the case 
that she said caused the the the, the rift between them and that right. it was a murder suicide the flashbacks hinted that it was not a murder suicide at all or if it I, was that the guy was alive right i would so, say yeah more more than more than hinted uh yeah that that i thought that was a very well executed scene of she's telling us one story but we're seeing another yep yeah and so i'm kind of curious to see um you know how that is one of the things that i'm actually kind of enjoying i, I think i mentioned this before <clears throat> is it is unlike a lot of shows set in the arctic doing a very good job for me of of being true to the arctic you know like nobody's house is very nice you know it's all <laughs> right. for example it, it all is what it is and everybody's jumping in bed with everybody else because it's right. a very very long night and <laughs> and it's and, and it's clear that that that's a little bit of an issue with uh, Danvers' relationship with various people, and right, you know, basically every some... everyone she's ever met, she slept with, seems to be, or <laughs> like or right. or is yeah. Mrs. Robinsoning her way towards sleeping with them? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, and what's the story with John Hawks' character? There, he's not all good at all, is he? So no, no. I'm quite... <laughs> I would say not. <laughs> so I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. So at the moment, I'm I'm still I'm still definitely intrigued very keen to see uh, uh which way it all goes and i really loved i i also quite like just a couple of the scenes are really nicely done just the way that she temporarily navarro after slipping and knocking the hitting herself on the right. back of the head just her temporary transportation sort of away uh, that scene i thought was very nicely done i liked that final scene of episode three as they're pulling back away through the hospital as they're watching the video of, of Annie Kotop being killed and all that kind of stuff. I think some of the individual scenes are, are really nicely done. It will be intriguing to see how they pull it together in, in just three episodes. But uh, yeah, I'm up for it still. There, There is a much uh, better pull, pulling the camera away uh, in a final scene of an episode uh, from uh, season four, episode 11 of Breaking Bad. But you'll watch that I knew, someday. I you'll knew know you were talking doing about. that. I knew it. As <laughs> soon as you started, I'm like, here we go. <laughs> I, I must say, I'm very proud of, uh, of my son. Apparently, they were filling out something in school about favorite movies and favorite TV shows. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the point of all this was or whatever, but uh, he somewhat surprised me by uh, among his favorite all-time three favorite TV shows. It was uh, Friends, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he put Breaking Bad in his top three. That's the very proud parenting moment to to hear that he had uh, that he had done that. He also put among his favorite four movies two two of the Tarantino movies we watched. So his his <laughs> teachers must be horrified by what his parents are letting him watch at age fourteen. Um, yes. But um, a couple of other things to comment on with with True Detective. One is I had noted in in our discussion after episode one that. You know, Kaylee Reese clearly is not a bad actress, um, but I was not yet sold on whether she was a good actress. Actress. Now I am ready to say she is a good actress. She was really good in, in episode three, conveying the emotions, the complexity of the character. She's good at this. Um, and the, the other thing I have noted down here is like, I'm not deep into theorizing and speculating about what's going to happen when I watch shows like this anymore. I, I used to do that. But, you know, I, I feel like lost, probably burned out any desire I had to do that uh, any anymore with shows. But um, mostly I sit just sit back and watch now. That said, one thing has occurred to me to wonder about. I wonder if it's going to turn out that Navarro's boyfriend or 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 fuck buddy, really, uh, whatever you want to call him, the ice fisher with the SpongeBob toothbrush, if he's going to turn out to be 
a bad guy or the bad guy just because they're making him out to be such a good person so far. You know, pre- pretty much everyone else on this show, except maybe the young cop, Pete, pretty yep. much everyone else. They're giving us reason to be suspicious about him or think that they're bad people. So Navarro's boyfriend, he he sticks out a bit uh, just with how they've given us nothing not to like about that guy so far. That was so funny. I hadn't thought about that with him. It's it's funny because yeah, like my whole reaction had been like, she's so mean to the poor dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I was thinking that with regard to Pete, actually, like what a standout, nice character he seemed to be. And yes, thinking exactly that, how True Detective's very good at giving you subtle little reasons to start thinking suspiciously about various characters, and then. With for long comes something out of left field. So I had thought about that. I'll be bummed if he's bad. I'll, right, like, right. He's such a sweet guy, it seems like. So, right. And, um, and Caleb Truax will be disappointed as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, there you go. Exactly. That, that ice fishing. I tell you what, it makes me want, I, you know, Sarah Jean and I were both watching it together and she was like, this makes me want to go ice fishing. It looks very cozy in there. And I, <laughs> I thought the same. It's a very nice place to go spend a little bit of time in the Arctic winter. No, no, still fish. Still, it still all looks way too cold for me. Ah, oh well. Though the worst place of all was when they visited. Um, now I'm forgetting his name. Walter, maybe toward the end of episode three, they tracked down the guy who used to work at Salal, and he's oh, sitting, yeah, yeah. He's sitting inside his cabin, and there's clearly no heat of any kind in there. It's yeah. just cold breath coming out of his mouth. You're uh, no, not for me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a little beyond me too, actually. And the the neighbors are a little weird. But that's what happens <laughs> right. when you go when you go live out on a nomad camp on the I ice, guess. I suppose. Those are the hardest of the hardcore. Right. Yeah. When I there am... are people who, who want to get away from the Arctic community because there are too many people. <laughs> yeah. I can understand that part of it, uh, the isolation, but I'm I'm isolating somewhere warm when my time to isolate right. comes. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. That will do it for this episode of the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast. Uh, we might start getting ourselves back onto a regular Sunday schedule after this, or perhaps a Monday schedule, so we can include True Detective. Um, we'll see. Uh, let me see. What have we got coming up? We've got a nice and timely From the Vault episode coming around the end of this week. Uh, that's going to have some relevance. And, uh, well, we'll just keep seeing uh, what comes up next. Um, anything else to add before we uh, before we sign off, or are we good to go, Eric? Nothing at all. Hit that sign off, Kieran. Very well. Then perhaps someday we will be elevated. But until then, we are merely the interim champion boxing podcast.